Todd Dills, and today we have a bit of a special edition of the Overdrive Radio Podcast. This is audio from a presentation made by TA Truck Center Director of Tech Services, Daniel Mustafa. The video paired with the podcast, check out the August 14 post on my Channel 19 blog, overdriveonline.com slash channel19. Mustafa might be the absolute best speaker on maintenance I've heard over the years. When it comes to imparting information critical to drivers, uh, stuff they can actually use when specking equipment and even more, troubleshooting maintenance, or as it were, troubleshooting a technician's recommendations for maintenance. This presentation was all about the evolution of batteries, alternators, and associated belts and pulleys, starters, and the cabling that connects them. The video of the ending demonstration you'll find on the blog is of an auto meter testing device designed to detect voltage drop within the starting and charging circuit, often the result of a bad wire. Too often, Mustafa says, technicians throw new starters and other components at a starting problem when the underlying cause, ultimately, is a bad cable. In any case, I'll keep this intro short. There are a couple mentions of a man named Homer by attendees who speak up during the presentation. Mustafa was presenting at the Expo last month in Lexington, Kentucky. For those out of the know, that's a reference to Mustafa's colleague and maintenance guru, Homer Hogg, who will be well known to many for his radio and show appearances and more. In any case, here's Mustafa's presentation. Uh, the picture you see to the right here is a flood cell maintenance-free battery. Very reliable technology. Uh, when they say the term maintenance-free, they mean they're not asking you to add electrolyte um, or, or any type of, you put the battery in, you start the charging, because the charging system starts it and you go down the road. So very uh, adequate technology when we were only asking it to start the vehicle and maintain minimum electrical service. What do I mean by minimal? Okay, uh, lights, right? Those are nice to have. Um, you, you know, the horn, systems that are all and all has been on the truck. But is that what we're still asking the batteries to do today? What do you guys think? What are some, what we would call uh, luxury <coughs> loads or hotel loads that you uh, are cu custom to see on the modern truck? Or refrigerators? Inverters. Yeah, PlayStations. <laughs> big screen TV. I see. Uh, full, I've seen full kitchens. I mean, so we're asking the starting system to do a lot of work that we previously were not asking it to do. And that's why that this battery is what we, you see that bottom line item maxed out. We've asked it, we've asked it to do everything that it can. So it, it is at the end of its life, so to say. If we're just asking it to start a vehicle, very, very good at doing it. So um, one of the line items that these two line items here, <laughs> these two line items here, cold cranking amps, you're probably very familiar with that term when you go in and ask for new batteries. A, a very common question is, well, what's the, what's the maximum cold cranking amps? So, good question, but not really, it doesn't really uh, show the full, uh, the full battery as, as far as what we're asking it to do, because let's say it's a thousand cold cranking, a very common value. But how long can it maintain that amperage? That's a whole different conversation. So when we ask a battery to start a truck, we're asking for a very short burst of energy. Now it's a lot, that's why we have four batteries typically in your larger displacement engines. But that burst of energy, it only has to maintain that for a few seconds. Typically three to five seconds is all we're asking it to do. But once I shut that truck off and I put on all of these hotel loads, right? How long can it maintain that amperage? And then we get into the conversation of reserve capacity or RCs. So when you look at a battery um, and you see the difference in price from a uh, $150 uh, interstate or alliance 
lead-acid starting battery, and then you see a battery that's $350. What's the difference, right? I, I guarantee you it's typically not cranking amps. It's typically the cranking amps. I can have two very similar batteries, but a 30 to 40% difference in, in uh, reserve capacity. So when you go into auto parts, it would be for your car or your truck, at, look at that value now. Now you're trying to say, well, what's the reserve capacity? So what that means is at 80 degrees, how long, how many minutes can I pull 25 amps before it drops to 10 and a half volts? Right, so let's say I'm gonna pull a uh, 25 amp load and the number of minutes it can maintain that is how is what the reserve capacity rate is. So for example, a general lead acid battery will be 150 minutes or so. So if I, now I, if now I have a 200 or 220 reserve capacity, minute reserve capacity battery, that will be able to maintain that 25 amp load for, for, that, for that 200 or so minutes. And that's when we start to get into different battery technology because um, I want more reserve capacity to care for those hotel loads. Some, some batteries, instead of reserve capacity, say amp hours, what's the difference? Say that one more time. Some batteries are marked, well, this one's marked reserve capacity and amp hours. But. Oh, um, amp hours, wow, let me think about that. Let me get back, let me answer that. I do, I have another thing to know, because there's another formula, there's so many, like I had 10 and a half volts for this many minutes. Right. I, I want to look, I don't want to misquote, so. Okay. I have another. Don't listen. <laughs> I've got another I can look at very quickly, I looked it up. But, um, but this one, but specifically, the one that typically changes when you go and grab a, um, when you go and grab a lead acid compared to a uh, AGM or a gel cell battery, the value that's changing is that reserve capacity. And that's the way you want to be most aware of because, of, again, because if you're in an application where you're parked with the truck off and things on, I'm not going to replenish those batteries. Another, another application that might be more applicable for this group is that if I if I never get to highway speeds for an extended period of time after I park for a while, because alternators have to work within a certain uh, RPM range to really get a full charge out of the battery. So that's another concern that we would have. To, that we would have. So um, let's go on to AGM. So we have uh, AGM is absorbed glass mat, and uh, we, we talked about a flooded battery on the previous slide. So when we say flooded, we're talking about I can hear the electrolyte and it's swishing around when I carry the battery. You won't have that in an AGM. In an AGM battery, the electrolyte is absorbed into glass mats, and that's where that term AGM comes from. Now, AGMs are not new technology. They're probably in trucks, maybe 11 or 12 years old. Um, their original inception into our industry was not nice because the industry wasn't ready for them. Excellent technology, but the failure rate was astronomical because there's charging voltage limitations. So if you have a, it used to be if you had an alternator fail with a flooded battery, it was durable enough to take that beating of high amperage uh, and still recover. Uh, this battery is not that way. In fact, it's a sealed unit and it actually has a valve in it that if you overcharge it, that valve will it'll heat that, the overcharging will heat up the electrolyte and that valve will open vent some of the electrolyte. Well, how, long, how many times are you gonna get away with that with a electrolyte star battery? So the little bit of food you had, I took away, right? So through that vent. And that's, so that's a, again, we got some concerns when it comes to AGM batteries. Um, it's a very versatile battery. You can mount it in any position because it's, it's sealed. You know, you have to mount a uh, flooded 
uh, flood cell battery, you have to mount it upright or it will leak. That, again, uh, it, all of your electrolyte is absorbed into those glass mats, so you don't have to worry about that. Um, it is a uh, maintenance-free battery, but that term is thrown around so much, I'm not even going to really talk a whole lot about it. But much higher RCs, usually you're going to get at least a 30% increase from a conventional um, starting electrolyte flooded battery when you shift up to an AGM. But again, not new technology, but it is more expensive. They, they're usually about double the price, somewhere in the range of double the price, $250 to $300 is not typically strange for an AGM battery. But again, we even have more loads on the, on the vehicle than we have. So um, I was at, there at the launch of the, of the uh, new Cascader, you know, the one that just recently came out. And uh, everything on that vehicle I can think of has some type of computer control. Brakes would typically were all air, our computer control. I don't mean simply uh, ABS. I mean like the truck can decide to apply or release the brakes. <laughs> you know, so they are electronically controlled. Um, all of the uh, stability control, obviously, is, is definitely new. All of the doors and windows are computers controlled. That switches a request to a computer now. It's not pushing and going to a motor. Uh, every system you can think of is electronic. This suspension, right? When you dump the suspension, it now goes to a computer. It, that was not the case seven years ago. So uh, the loads on the vehicle, what we're asking it to do has gone up, right? So uh, refrigeration units, lift gates, all of those systems are uh, require more support than what, was, than, what was, than what was typical in the past. So that gave birth to this guy. Now, I've got one of these batteries sitting on my toolbox at home for these pre for this exact presentation. So what you might ask is why didn't I bring it, right? Okay, here's why. They took the lead, they took the, this is a pure lead AGM battery. So this is, again, we have flooded AGM, pure lead AGM, okay? Now, a pure lead North Star battery, which there is one other manufacturer I can't think of. This is just the one we're partnered up. I can't think of the name. At any rate, um, they have much larger plates. They compress the plates and then force it into that and all of the, and force it into the housing. So all of these ribs that you see along the side are reinforcement ribs to hold this compressed lead in. So that battery is 90 pounds. Well, that's why I didn't bring it. I said, I'm trying to lug this thing around. A regular battery will suffice for what I'm going to talk about today. Um, so you have much, it's 99.9% pure lead, right? Well, what does that do? Uh, it lowers the resistance of the battery. So some people may wonder why, you know, they say not to uh, put a battery on concrete or, or, not, or don't leave, you have to start that car that's been parked in your yard, you have to start it on occasion. That's because the truck itself, or excuse me, the battery itself is a load. It has resistance. Well, this guy doesn't have very much resistance. So. Uh, if I can show you the top, actually you can see a little bit of it there. So if you look at the cranking amperage, that is not uh, 215, that is 2,000 amps that that thing is able to deliver uh, upon command. And usually the reserve capacity is, uh, and you can see the reserve capacity is 220 minutes. And they have, this is not the highest level of North Star battery. So um, information about this battery, I am an engine builder and car restorer at heart, that's what I do as my hobby. So I had this free North Star battery. I said, I'm gonna put this in my, my truck for a little while, right? So I put it in my 70s vehicle. It blew the alternator in about an hour and a half of operation. Why? It asks, when you start with this battery, <laughs> the, the resistance is so low, 
it asks for all of the efforts that you just took by starting. It asks for it back immediately. So typically, if I have a vehicle with these uh, with these uh, batteries in it, I would typically have to have a much, much larger, much more stout alternator because that alternator is going to be asked to deliver 300 amps immediately. My poor 60 amp alternator wasn't up to the task, so I had to have it rebuilt. But I just ordered eight of those for our new truck to run the sleeper. Yeah, because you have the, uh, on your equipment, you would have the auxiliary uh, system. Right. But I also, um, when I ordered the truck, ordered a 300 amp alternator. Exactly. And, and, you, and they wouldn't have gave me, given you the option to say no. But what I'm concerned about is the guy who says, give me four of those on my 2008 truck, right? Because now you're going to have alternator problems. When you send that alternator in the Delco for warranty, they're going to tell you you have a shorted battery. It's not a shorted battery, but it has the same symptoms. Short just means give me amps, right? That's what that means. That, when they say, oh, you got a short to ground, and that's popping fuses in your truck, all that means is that give me amps right now, and that's what's popping that fuse. So again, you put this battery in my alternator builder, because I don't, I don't I rebuild everything, uh, but this specific facility in Nashville is excellent at electrical stuff, so I go to them. But, um, when I took it, the first thing they said is, oh, you better take care of that shorted battery. No, I didn't have a shorted battery. I just took it out of its application. That, so to his point, you need that 300 amp alternator. And that's what we're going to discuss now is the alternator that it takes to support this guy. Um, so you have, uh, well, actually, I'm, I'm going to say one other point about this is uh, they are heavy. <laughs> I, want to make, I, want to, I want to reiterate that point. So you do have a little concern that you might lose, you know, 100 or 50 pounds, 150 pounds, if you add these to a vehicle that didn't have them previously. It does add to the weight of the vehicle because they are a little heavier. Usually that's not enough to really break the bank as far as hauling freight, but it is a point to note that they are substantially, they're probably 30% heavier than uh, a traditional AGM or lead acid. So, um, but there, and there's no core on them, you know, or anything like that. The, the manufacturer cannot remanufacture them. So um, there, there's no core or no core charge. Um, we are in the process of finalizing working with them. So when you when you do have that, you will be able to go in. And one of the biggest concerns with the North Star battery is that it's hard to find support, and we're trying to distribution. Exactly, and we're trying to resolve that now, um, where we'll be distributors for them. And they have some other ones. I'm not at all here to sell you anything, but they do have some other ones. But that's one of the concerns with that battery is distribution. So. Um, so alternators, well, again, we talked about the changes in the vehicle. Once that truck starts uh, and, and is running, typically the alternator is supporting the majority of the load, and your battery is more so acting as a buffer. So if you look at the voltage coming out of your alternator, it's ugly voltage, right? It looks a lot like this, even though it's cleaned up, because if it without the systems that are inside of it, it would look like this. But, but you still have some waveform to it. Well, the batteries at this point are pretty much out of the picture. But they, they will buffer that to give you nice, clean voltage. I just wanted to mention that. But so the traditional brush type, and these are, I don't at all want to give you the impression they don't make this alternator anymore. Absolutely they do. Uh, a brush type, there are manufacturers out there that specialize in brush type motors, but, uh, excuse me, alternators. The issue with brush type alternators is, is that they have substantially more parts. Now, whenever you say more parts, I want you to think more failure parts. Okay, um, so uh, they're much less efficient, right? Those 
those uh, additional parts required for the voltage to go from one point to the next, from one point to the next, you know, the elbows connected to the arm, it's going to, it has to go through each of those points, and that's more opportunity for voltage drop, which requires the alternator to have higher output to overcome its own resistance. Does that make sense? So, brush type. Uh, you get, with all those failure points, you get carbon buildup, more internal resistance, brush wear, uh, heat cracking on the brushes themselves. So they've reduced the number of parts substantially. I definitely would suggest that if you have some time, take a look at the Delco Remy website. They have excellent information on the comparison because I can take off, I can save you $100 or so and take off your brushless that it came from the factory with and they could sell you a brush type. So you need to know the implications of that switch, right? If I would want to know that if I'm switching from one technology to the next, to another, not I want to say next, to an older technology, what am I losing in that exchange? Very important to ask that question when it comes to starting a charger because that fella right there will bolt up right where they took off your brush type. I mean brush, excuse me. Uh, typical output is 60 to 200 amps. Now here's what I want to make clear because I, I did have somebody disagree with that statement. If I wanted to go above that, I have to have a much larger alternator. Okay, so there are companies out there that will sell you a 300 amp brush type uh, alternator, but it's going to be a huge alternator in comparison to what you would have with a uh, with a brush. So, uh, so there's the exact alternator that is probably on his vehicle. Um, the modern brushless, because there are uh, there is a middle ground, a brush type, uh, a 36 SI if you're using the Delco system, and then the 40 SI which is what's pictured here. Um, 13 fewer parts. That's good news, right? That's four, that's 13 places, less places that that alternator can fail, okay? Um, three to five times longer life. Three to five times longer life. Don't let anybody tell you differently. That is a fact. And again, I've had brush man manufacturers who uh, specialize in brushless motors argue against that statement. But that is a fact, three to five times longer life. Fuel economy gains. There is an excellent calculator on that same website of if you were to go from a traditional 36i brushless, so it's still a brushless motor, to a 40si, that alternator is working so much less, right? It's not doing as much work because it's such a higher output. It doesn't have to work as hard to get the same average value. Um, and it spends less time uh, charging the batteries and more time maintaining it because it's able to put out so much more amperage. Uh, that they have a calculator that'll show you for the number of miles that you drive, what your uh, what your fuel economy savings will be on that same Delco Remy website. So I, again, I just uh, I, I say go there. Um, <clears throat> remote sense is standard. What remote sense is uh, so when, if I'm spinning the alternator, right? Typically, people say if you put it on the front of the engine, you're losing miles per gallon. So you know anything that the engine has to drive, essentially, right? Well, the, the thing about the alternator is its resistance is based on the amount of voltage and amperage that I'm asking it to put out. Right, so, if that, so that alternator, once it gets those batteries up to, to a good charged voltage, it'll start to take less and less, it'll start to put less and less load on the engine. So remote sense helps us with that. Remote sense gives me a direct line to the batteries, not, in, not, you, not seeing all of the voltage drop in the cables. It uses a separate wire that's no load, so I get a nice, good voltage uh, signal from the batteries and it tells that automator I can switch on and off and, and be more uh, responsive to the needs of the truck. So 
uh, is optional on a lot of alternators, it's standard on that one. You can't get more without <clears throat> Pulley size is important. Again, um, a uh, alternator has to be operating within its correct RPM range. Larger alternator, uh, excuse me, larger pulley is going to give me uh, uh, lower RPM operation. Smaller pulley is going to overdrive it, give me uh, higher RPM operation, uh, higher RPM range. Um, so you do have to know that value. Uh, a lot of advancements in the components, instead, they didn't just put a bigger components in here. They changed the metallurgy of the internal components. They changed the machining of the internal components. So there's, there's a lot of new technology inside. I don't want you to just think it's bigger, and that's why it puts out more. It doesn't quite work that way. Um, they, they definitely refine the process that they use to make the alternator. Now, you guys know that all that stuff I just said it means it's, it's a thousand dollar You know, it's a very expensive alternator. Typically, it's not available on the shelf of like us, a truck stop. I don't believe we stocked that one. Uh, if we didn't the last time I checked. Um, again, no core charge because it cannot be rebuilt and a, um, it can, it's not rebuilt by Delco. I want to say it cannot be rebuilt. It, it, they, there are facilities that re, will rebuild them, but it won't be through Delco. That's my point. Uh, typical output, 100 to 430 amps. A very, very capable alternator. Uh, so, talking a little bit about maintenance, okay, um, with, you know, all of this great technology really only matters if I maintain it properly. So, very commonly overlooked, and I wanted to touch on this, I didn't know if I should or not because we're talking about belt, right? Same belt that, that they had on the truck 100 years, you know, 50 years ago. That's not true. The materials have changed so much on the, uh, on the, from the belt manufacturer. They make it out of a much, much better material. So when we use the spec belts, what do we look for typically? Cracks. Cracks. Shiny. Right. Is it is it glazed? That shiny look to it? Is it gouged? Almost none of that will happen on the modern. And that belt can have you know could be double the life it was meant to be, and still still not show any of those symptoms because the material is bad. So what tip? So what you need now, and this doesn't have this isn't the that picture shows up much better on that computer than it does on the screen, so you have to bear with me. But what you see being done here is that on the left, and if you guys are interested in seeing this closer, I definitely will go back to this at the end if you want to take a better look at it. But what you see on the left here is that those grooves are uh, opened up wider. It's worn out, right, is what that means, okay? Making the pulley sit down further in that V groove, okay? And that's important to understand is that if, that, if it sits down lower, it changes how it, uh, how well it grabs that pulley, and you'll be here, you'll be half slipped. And because of those materials, it won't chirp or anything like that, so it's much, much, much too late. You've lost a lot of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? You've lost a lot of the uh, ability for that to do its job. You, you've suffered some loss, and it's going on. What's that? Traction. Uh, yeah, exactly. Then you, you don't get the same grip that you get with the newer belt. So as opposed to the picture on the right, where I have much deeper grooves, and you have to have some kind of gauge, which they're free from Gates, Dayco. They'll, you know, you can go out right on their website and say, send me a free one. And they'll send you the little belt inspection gauge. Well, uh, absolutely. Homer showed me a, an app that you can draw a white line on the belt and take a picture of it through Gates. Yeah, absolutely. And it'll tell you if the belt's good or not. Yeah, and Gates is, I mean, they're, they're, they're really good. That's the one I like the, the most, both, not just the uh, quality of the product, because I think that like the Dayco and Gates is apples to apples, you know. But when you talk about the um, support 
uh, and their coverage. <laughs> I think they have a, a very good, very good coverage. You know, in fact, I'll say for like a DD15 or DD engine, um, their their attention is better than the manufacturers. I, and it, you know, for and it's, it's expensive, but their attention is actually a, a, a very good design, even in comparison to the manufacturers. So, um, so again, you you want to not only inspect it for beltware, but the pulleys themselves will wear as well. You know, so if you ever this, a lot of people replace the tensioner thinking the spring is out. No, it's obviously it's doing this, right? So the spring's doing something. What is actually taking place is that because the pulleys are worn, the length of the belt is actually changing. You, if you understand what I'm saying. So if you if you have high spot, low spot, high spot, low spot on one of your pulleys, the, the thing's gonna do this because I'm asking it to go further, go less, go further, go less. So when you see that, putting a tensioner and a belt on it may or may not fix it. Hopefully the change in dimension is on the tensioner, not on one of the other pulleys like the oscillator or the water pump or something like that. So again, when you see certain symptoms with belts, pay attention not only to just throwing a belt and tensioner on it because every pulley is can wear. It's made, you know, yes, it's made out of metal, but absolutely, if I rub metal hard enough, it'll go away. So uh, just keep that in mind that you have to look out for more than just belt wear, but also pulley wear. Could be the bearings too. Absolutely. But at least you'll get a warning. See, that's the thing. Not yes. Typically, you get a sound or something. You, you might get a sound. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's pretty far gone. Oh, yeah. No, you're right. At that point, you're at, you're at mission critical now. You know, uh, you're impeding the breakdown. So. Uh, but again, the, the old materials that we talked about were neoprene as opposed to this uh, EPDM uh, inspection. The procedures are different to inspect those because um, the belt will not crack. Or I mean, if it's cracked, it was bad 100 or 200 thousand miles ago. If it's if you see cracks on the bottom belt, it was bad. I would say probably 200 thousand miles ago. Um, okay, so grounds, right? Do we do we inspect the ground surface again? We really like all of these new and sexy electronics on trucks, but they still have to. They still depend upon the quality of the cables and stuff like that. So uh, why does that matter to you? If, if a, a service provider is working on your truck and they can't tell you how they tested the cables, that's a, that's a cause for a complaint. And us included, you're gonna have that issue in a, in a shop somewhere and it, it might be one of ours. So I'm not at all saying, you know, come to TA, we'll never do that. No, because they're, the, the technicians typically think component, right? Oh man, you need a starter, right? Big, bolts and all this stuff. No, dude, it might be the cable that caused the starter, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, actually, no, I'll talk about it now. Um, starters, right? We, we change a lot of those. When we return, we are partnered with Delco, and when we change, and we send them right back under warranty. Great, great program. How many, not just us, industry-wide, how many uh, starters are returned under warranty for a warrantable condition, would you say? Very few, probably. Very few, 90%, 89% that are returned under warranty are not a warrantyable failure. And the number one cause of failure, you guessed it, voltage drop from cables, right? Not, well, let me rephrase that, not providing sufficient, uh, sufficient voltage. Here's the problem. When the starter fails, okay, so here's the light, okay, now you need to have at least 12.4 volts getting to the alternator, right? At least that's minimum. Under that voltage, you shouldn't really crack trucks. And some trucks, some smarter vehicles won't allow you to. Um, it's going to start though, right? Inside that um, 
starter is going to arc and start to burn contacts on the inside from low voltage cranking. Okay, it, it takes more amperage to jump the gap if I'm if I'm doing it with reduced voltage. Okay, with increased amperage, I burn stuff. Okay, so it's going to start. Now, as I keep cranking, all that conductive material is getting burn marks all around it, right? So that's why you hear people hammering on starters trying to get a good spot, you know, <laughs> a good, you know, two points that, that, that are not burned up to get contact. That's why you, that's why that works, is when you're hitting it inside, you're causing very small turns, hoping that it settles on a spot that doesn't have burn marks on it. That's why you hammer, that's why people hammer on starters. Okay. Now, when I put on a new starter, because it's finally, I can't, I beat the crap out of the starter and finally it won't crank, right? Finally it won't crank. When I put on a new starter, what's that? It'll crank, right? For a little while. Exactly, as a technician, I high-five myself and say, I fixed that truck. Well, the problem is I've left the, those crappy cables, the crappy batteries, whatever system problem I have, I've left those components on the vehicle to cause problems in the future. Right? So now, that's why your first starter lasted 300 or 400 or 500,000 miles and your second one only lasted six. Y'all piece of crap, reman uh, starters, right? No, it's not the case. They didn't resolve the root problem being the, the circuit. And I don't know why they don't. You know, replacing wires pays too. I don't know why technicians wouldn't want to do that. They basically uh, gave you drugs to exactly remedy yeah. the condition, not cure the condition. And the only way that you know that is to, is to pull a, a load. And, and that's what I have. You guys heard earlier, you were here earlier, I cranked that starter, and those cables are for sure bad. I assure you they're bad. I've had to change starters on train maintenance before from, you know, cranking and cranking and cranking and cranking and burning up the starter and say, all right, put on another one. You know, that's, that's the value of training. I love that aspect of it. You just put on another one. That's the only way to show you what bad looks like. So when we're done in uh, five more slides or so, uh, we'll, we'll come up and I want to just run a test briefly and, and let you guys see uh, how it communicates that information. I want to talk a little bit about what values are good, what values are bad, and when you, when you should start to have concern. But again, that, that starter is going to crank, and it is definitely operating on low, on low voltage. If you take the cable off and you put a volt, uh, a resistance, you know, ohm meter on it, it's going to ohm good because there are some good strands, <laughs> you know, uh, but but if there's not enough to consistently crank that starter without causing damage over the line. Um, so circuit testing is of the utmost importance. Battery testing, now it's interesting, when we say circuit testing and battery testing, why do you think I put that under maintenance and not repair or something like that? Because you can stop a lot of repairs if you do the maintenance. Thank you, somebody gets it, man. I'm telling you, that is the key. There should be no, uh, there are companies that have such good maintenance practices, and I mean that, their maintenance practices are so good now we're talking about a 2% or so breakdown. I mean, if that truck breaks down, if they have a breakdown, it's only 2% of the total fleet that they had. I'm not gonna advertise for somebody else. I'm not telling you who it is, but, but uh, I have studied their maintenance programs to, so that I can make suggestions to drivers. Um, and it's, it's bar none the best I've seen. And they're, uh, but, but the, they do that, understanding that every component on that vehicle has a life. And, and some kind of inspection procedure. I don't care what component on that vehicle. I bet you your radio has a, a, a time period in which you need to make sure the crap works, so the buttons and stuff work. So my point is saying that it's just that maintenance absolutely is much, much less expensive than repair. You can plan it. You can go out and get the best pricing on both labor and parts. You can, you have control of the situation. Whereas if you have to come into one of our facilities on the highway, 
it's more expensive. You know, right? You're paying for the convenience. You're paying for you. You're paying for all that overhead. You're paying. Well, you, you're paying. That's really what it boils down to. And my point is, is that we want to help you not have to do that. You know, um, and maintenance is how you do that. Absolutely, maintenance is how you do that. Hopefully, we can help with that. But maintenance is definitely how you do it. So, what's a good suggestion? I would do my batteries every season, right? Every, let me rephrase that. Every time it's about to get hot and every time it's about to get cold. So every other season, we'll say. Because- Spring and fall. What's that? Spring and fall. Absolutely. Because, you know, batteries have a hard life in the, in the winter, especially with those hotel loads we talked about earlier. Why? So inside of a flooded acid battery, we'll talk old technology first. Uh, as I get, um, as I use that, as I run that battery down, okay, the, the part of it that we call battery acid separates itself and attaches it, it attaches itself to all the plates inside the battery, and you're left with water. What do we know about water and cold? Right? What do we know about water when it gets cold? What does it do? Freeze. It freezes. And it expands when it freezes. And, it, and, it, and that's how your batteries fail in a way. Is that if you run all those, if you run the big screen with the PlayStation, right? You're, you're that guy, or refrigerator, or all these other loads overnight. Did I get that battery all the way back up? Typically the answer is no. You know, you really have to run a truck at a pretty good pace to get that battery back all the way up to fully charged and get all of that sulfur back mixed into the, to the electrolyte. Uh, if you don't, you start to get a, a condition called sulfation. There's a condition before that, but I'm not worried about it. I'm worried about sulfation. That's when the electrolyte, uh, excuse me, the sulfur is sucked to the plate, and there's no way to get it off. Well, okay, there's a way, but it's not yeah, safe. There's a way. There's a way, <laughs> but uh, it's not. A, it's not the safest process. But um, but there is a way. You, you can get it. You, you can revive a dead battery, but no no service providers would do that. But I would at home. <laughs> now that's another story. But um, but I told you I like to revive old stuff. Takes too long. I can get it done quick. It's just not safe. You can blow up a battery. Yeah, it's not safe. Yeah, but I'm saying if you do it right, it takes a couple Absolutely. days. And you have to you have to shock the battery. I'll put it that way. Mm -hmm. And there are there is equipment that can do it safely, but it takes two days to do it. So my point is, are you going to sit two days to save a thousand bucks or whatever the battery is going to cost you? Probably not. So so anyway, it's it's a dead battery. So so facial is the number one killer of batteries. Meaning I bring that battery down too low. I bring it down too low. Then I revive it, but only but not but only the ninety percent. Well, if you do that enough, you never get the ten percent back through because of sulfation, and then that, that ninety becomes eighty, and so on and so forth. Um, <clears throat> circuit testing might as well do it. With, you don't have to do that on a seasonal basis, but might as well because you're already there. You're already at that at that place uh, where you where you came. Uh, cable voltage drop is what we've been discussing. So modern components with conventional circuits, right? So uh, you've got all of these very, very advanced computers, but they're still driven by very, very old copper and materials. So just remember that they, there's no there's no breakthroughs happening in wiring. Okay, they're still the same, and what you see is not necessarily what you get. The the sulfate, uh, excuse me, the corrosion could be inside the cables, and that's typically where you see those failures. So the only way to know that you to know that you have voltage drop issue where I'm losing where my uh, wires have become a consumer of voltage because of resistance. The only way to do that is to pull the load on the test load. What's the easiest way to do that? What's that? The easiest way to do that. 
with the tool I'm gonna show you. That it definitely by far is the easiest. Uh, the, and it's, it's very, very accurate because I tested it. Um, so we partnered with Autometer originally and uh, for the tool I'm gonna demo. And uh, we tested it for them for the last three years, and I was the tester. I was the person that was taking it around and saying, "Hey, play with this, see if you can break it, right?" Because it's interesting technology. But um, and I compared it to a voltmeter and a load tester. That's the most accurate way to test a, a wire is to to hook the a load tester up and crank it to 500 amps to see if the how much it consumes under that load. Um, but that is a way better way because it it is accurate. It's very very accurate. It pulls a real load, but um, and, and you'll see that. I mean, if you touch it while after pulling several loads, it's hot. It's pulling a load. You know, it's pulling absolutely. And uh, and you got some other cables acting as that voltmeter, so it replaces that that process. Uh, you can use the start, but the issue with it, how many variables are there when you crack a truck? Well, okay, battery condition is uh, circuit condition, uh, viscosity of the oil, age of the engine. Uh, I mean, just to name a few, how many things are on the belt, you know, so uh, Daimler came out with a sliding scale to say if you're pulling this many amps, it'll be this much voltage drop, right? If you're pulling this many uh, amps, it'll be this much acceptable voltage drop. The problem with that is now I need another tool. I need an amp clamp able to read up to 2,000 amps, right? You know, so you, it gets complicated, whereas that tool just, you know, just does its thing and you're done. You hit a button. Um, so. Uh, that, and that's what I said, that's what we'll do. Uh, modern testers are very capable, which we'll show you in a second. Uh, modern tools uh, require, okay, so what, what do I mean by require, the requirement of modern tools? Uh, AGM batteries, you cannot charge nor test with a 20-year-old battery charger for a battery tester. It doesn't work. If you put, you know, the old, just regular old carbon files, that, that won't tell you anything on an AGM battery. You need something that's electronic and programmed to, uh, to test the AGM battery. And even, even if I have a pure lead as opposed to a conventional AGM battery, you need a special test because they are very, very different in function. Um, modern uh, monitoring and reporting. Okay, now one thing that you will that you will get with this with the tool, this tool is that I can track, let's say let's say you come in in the spring, I test your batteries and charge the system. Then you come in in the fall, I do the same thing. I can compare those two values for you with that software because it requires, it records everything and uploads it to a, to a website. So I can see trends and that's one of the powerful things about it. Now we, we're also using that same technology to refine our own process. So we're taking that information I can actually graph and see, okay, site 001 has done uh, 1,000 battery tests and 500 cable tests. That's a pretty good ratio considering there's four batteries on the truck, right? They're, they're testing those cables. I can look at site 002 and say, they've tested 1,000 batteries and only done 10 cable tests. What are they skipping? That cable test, who are they taking advantage of? You, the driver. So we're using that same reporting information to track that and, and discipline locations and say what well, train locations <laughs> not to do that behavior <laughs> uh, let's say it differently uh, to make sure that, that we don't have that that tendency because it obviously if i'm a technician i can save time by skipping stuff well that's not saving you you know that's not taking care of you so we're using that same information to drive the right behaviors in the locations uh let's see um 
New batteries require specific formulas to test. I spoke on that, but I didn't speak on this next item. The alternator, we typically test the voltage, saying, okay, yes, it's putting out the proper push, the proper uh, pressure, right? We test the efforts to say, okay, this is a 100 and, you know, 120 amp alternator. It should be able to put out 80% of its load at any point, right? Well, one of the things that we don't test for, an old tester in a meter or something like that wouldn't test for, test for is a diode ripple. Okay, now that's a term that I'm sure everybody knows, right? Diode ripple. Well, what that is, is you have an alternator. It is creating alternating current. That is not what your truck runs on. It runs on direct current, BC. So how do they get along? Well, we have a diode that pulls out the AC and only feeds your truck DC. But if it leaks, right, diode leakage is what it's called, it will send AC voltage into your truck. Now, that doesn't sound like a big deal, but let's think about it. You have wheel speed sensors that run on AC voltage. They're going to freak out. You have um, crank position sensors that run on AC voltage. They're going to freak out because now they don't know what to do, right? They're used to value 0.3, uh, let's say 0.1 to 0.8 maybe. Uh, once I, now I'm, feeling, I'm seeing three, four volts of, of, of uh, AC uh, voltage. That's not good. That's not going to work. So now your vehicle doesn't know how fast it's going. It doesn't know what position the engine's in. You see my point is that typically, if you can have a truck where a, a, a mechanic spends a day doing electronic troubleshooting on why the truck won't start and it ends up being an alternator problem. Because of the fact, again, that you need a modern tool. If he just goes and says, yes, it's charging, that will not work. Because it could be charging perfectly at three volts. I mean, I'm sorry, 14 volts, but three of them would be AC. That's not gonna work. Okay. So again, modern testers are going to test for that automatically. It's not something where I have to say, oh yeah, test the diode ripple. Um, the tester's going to do that automatically. It is, when you say off air test, it understands that that is what you're asking it to do. And that's the tool also. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And our old tool did the same thing. It just didn't. Um, so the tool that we, we just moved to this in the last three months or so, but we've been using it in 30 locations for maybe a year. Um, it's the corrupt transition people. <laughs> anyway, um, but the um, the old tool did that part, but it didn't test AGM battery very well, and it didn't test the pure layer at all. So um, we, we definitely have to go research.